Welcome to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns. Real people, real voices, real lives. Discussing mental health, addiction and disability in the community. Your weekly window to the real world. Welcome to Take It From Us. Yes, take it from us. Welcome into our program for another week. How are you doing? Hope you're going okay. Leave us a note, as always. Uh, we, we love it when you do. Facebook.com. Uh, get to the Take It From Us page on there. I've had a pretty good week, I have to say. I've been thinking a lot about the weather lately. Sounds a little bit corny, but I'm just—I've been loving these beautiful autumnal days, and I know with autumn it gets colder. Winter's coming up, you know, and we can see a little bit of rain, but those beautiful, crisp, still clear days, I'm just totally in love with them. And I have a little gratitude journal, which I keep at home, and I try and write down one or two things every day that I'm grateful for. You know, I don't need to do five or ten because that might be a lot, but maybe on every day I'll try and do one or two, and then I can look back at the journal and reflect on all of the things that I've been grateful for over the past few weeks. And I've been writing about leaves on the ground, about the greenness of the trees and the blue skies and just how beautiful the weather has been. And you know what else I've noticed? Better sleep. I am sleeping a heck of a lot better since the days became cooler. So there is something to be, I know we're coming into winter, but there is something to be said, I think, for these beautiful autumnal days that we've been having. The sleep has been so much better. I'm not overheating. I'm actually snuggling into bed at night looking for a good night's sleep, waking up with better brain function. Hey, that's what it's all about. So feeling very sharp today. As I say, please leave us a note on the Facebook page. Take it from us. On the program today, we'll talk to the developer of a new certification system to help neurodiverse people into work and to try and keep them there. So here we're talking about the likes of people with ADHD, autism, other forms of brain injuries. This will be really interesting. Rich Rowley will be here to tell us more about something called Brain Badge. He's hoping to get this off the ground in the next few weeks. We'll also have a chat with Dr. Campbell Thompson. He's a senior performance psychologist with High Performance Sport New Zealand. How do they help our athletes? Because of the stresses and the pressures they find themselves in, we hear some, some pretty rough stuff, don't we, about the the way that our athletes are dealing with stress and their ability to cope. So we need to take a little dig into that. So we'll have a chat with Dr. Campbell Thompson on the program. But first up today is our top female high jumper. Her name is Keely O'Hagan. Keely's been through some tough times. She's been through depression. She had an eating disorder and attempted to take her own life when she was younger. But now she finds herself in a really good place and is awaiting a decision as to whether she will represent New Zealand at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham later this year. Keely, it's so lovely of you to join our program. Thank you so much for your time. How are you doing? Uh, good, thank you. Doing really well. Um, just... Uh, finished up my training for the day so on to everything else that's scheduled how about the com games when do you find out whether you get the nod or not around the 20th of june so still another uh, 10 days or so away um mm. but yeah obviously hoping for a successful outcome but if motivation for the future. Is, is that something that takes up a, a lot of space in your mind? Do you think you dwell on it at all? Um, not initially. So initially I had kind of, um, I didn't, I hadn't met the criteria. So I've only done one B standard and it did. 
two standards, uh, two B standards at least um, for um, possibly going. But mm-hmm. so I had kind of disregarded that, and you know, was just looking forward to other things throughout the year. But then there's been a couple of conversations mm-hmm. between um, myself and some other. Athletics New Zealand just around some other potential outcomes. So it's taken up a bit more space in my head than I had initially anticipated. Just, yeah, you've obviously, you don't want to get your hopes up too high because um, it's outside of my control um, now. But, yeah, it's just a little bit nerve-wracking, um, but not too, um, I'm not too anxious about it, which is good. Hmm. Yeah, you know, we, we want to talk to you about your life as, as much as your sporting career, and, and you've got a, a pretty inspiring story to tell us, and we'll, we'll get to that real soon. But I read recently where you said that you're really proud of yourself, and that perhaps, you know, once upon a time you would have found that very difficult to, to say that and to acknowledge that. What are you really proud of? I think I'm just really proud of myself for persevering and also f- um being here, you know, in this in the space of who I am as a person as well. I've just evolved and grown so much and um, being and see and acknowledge that is something that I think, yeah, I'm really proud of and just everything that I've been able to overcome. Um, but, but, yeah, I think the main thing with am today, like I'm very content with who that person is. Obviously, we can't be perfect all the time and have positive um, feelings Oh, you know, positive thoughts all the time, but like as a whole, I think content is probably something that um, mm. that I feel about myself, which is cool. Um, so yeah, I'm just proud of of me and proud of the 15 year old, mm. um, you know, who was able to push through everything. 15 to 17 year old. Yeah, it's really interesting you use the word content because I think that it's such a powerful word and really when I think about things, it's kind of what we're all striving for is that feeling of contentment. And and I know myself, I've made the mistake in the past of, of being worrying about being happy, but really happiness is an emotion, it comes and it goes. But if you're content, even on a bad day, you know that you're all right. Is that kind of what you're, you've discovered about yourself? That's where you are now? Yeah, definitely. And I... And obviously there's different aspects of my life that I have associate kind of slightly different emotions to at times, but yeah, they come and go in waves. And I think contentment is something that I uh, I realized a little while ago. I don't know how long ago, a couple of years ago that I wanted to strive for because I, I had that kind of realization. You can't be happy. You can't be okay all the time. You will have moments where, or t- long, they might be long periods of time and that's, that is okay. That happens. It's part um, and so I, I kind of can acknowledge that and then just, you know, look forward and um, continue to strive for that contentment because, yeah, you can't, you can't be on top of the world all the time. It's a very fleeting feeling. You're 28 years of age now and you just referenced that you've come such a long way since you were 15. What can you tell us about some of the ups and downs that you faced in those years? Yeah, so... Um, I think, you know, it's when you're 15, you're going through a lot of uh, <laughs> physical and emotional of hormones and just life is very different um, around friends and you're learning things about friends. And I had um, some um, relationship breakdowns with relationship breakdowns as well. And um, that was kind of the of it. And then these pressures, these sporting pressures that I had, um, just led me down a spiral. Like, um, 
ran away from home. I um, needed to get out. I, I, I realised that I needed to get out of the environment that I was in in order to be able to move forward. And, um, yeah, it was kind of, I think, 15 onwards was when I um, ended up kind of stuck into depression, um, which I wasn't formally diagnosed to, uh, diagnosed mm. with it. 17, um, and then when I had depressants then. So it just kind of, yeah, sport was difficult because I excelled a lot. I was always really good at sport in a variety of different sports with rep teams. Um, athletics was one remained a constant of me and I wanted mm. to do, you know, long term, but um, I got a national record age group. Um, and I think that having those pressures um, on top of, like, um, on my shoulders as a 15-year-old was really hard to live up to, the expectations mm. as well. So I think alongside normal life, and then I also had some stuff going on with my family, and, um, yeah, there was some, it was just really overwhelming and just so many, mm. so many emotions and things that you're trying to process that you don't know, mm. um, which, yeah, led me right down to an attempted suicide. Um and, you know, fortunately, I'm, I was able to seek. So after that, I went around support for a little while, which was definitely what I needed. Um, but before then, I had seen a counsellor on and off. Um, but I also wasn't, I think, showing um, or letting other people see how bad I was, which is a, I do regret. I wish that I had confided in, in people mm-hmm. earlier. Because mm. everyone around me mm. cared about me and wanted me to be okay, so that was kind of yeah around my life. And then, fortunately, when I was um, almost eighteen, I just things started. You know, I I was on antidepressants, and then I was very anti. I was really against them initially, um, but they, you know, helped save my. Wouldn't do anything, be able to do anything without them. Mm. And how far, how far removed are you now from that person? Uh, in some ways, very far removed. You know, I, um, I, and I, I obviously never seen situation and circumstances change, and we go through periods of time. But I, you know, would really like to hope that so many skills and learn so much about myself and my triggers that I would not be able to be get back to that mm. stage and be that person and that I was, you know, I was a frightened, scared girl um, who didn't know how to cope with the world and the um, situation around her. Um, and, you know, we ha- I have moments, I think, I think there's a lot of positives and I still am in, in some ways that person in terms of my personality and um, I'm quite out there. Um, and, you know, just love to have a good time and laugh, whereas just everything, um, the kind of, I guess, what I'd associate more with, like, the negative parts and the down, the downs, um, I'm very far removed from her. I don't have any of the same thoughts that I used to have just around. Also, I, I was very low. I had a lot of low confidence as a person, whereas now I have a lot more confidence in myself, um, both who I am and, you know, obviously sporting and, you know, jobs and 
that. But um, yeah, so quite far removed in a lot of ways. So it sounds like you've got coping tools now. Yeah. Um, For me, I'm a huge um, someone who loves to just take time out um, when I need to. So, you know, I love tea. I'm just yesterday I bought another tea, another mug. I'm just I have an obsession with mugs and I love to drink tea, go and sit somewhere nice, you know, outside. For me, nature is just amazing. I and I think that's part of the reason why I've continued to love my sport is because majority of the stuff we do is outside. Being um, there's something very special about fresh air and trees and sunlight. Um, so for me that that's what kind of my my coping um me, uh, skills are my the ways that I cope I are that I put myself in an environment that makes me feel good um but I also have a do- like deep as well so I write stuff down um that I'm really struggling with or onto paper um and then obviously I have friends um a couple of close friends that I can confide in um, who I know won't have any ju- hold any judgment. There's always a safe space there, and I think that's something that I didn't feel like I had when I was younger. I had the you know those people in my corner who I could talk to about if things were really down, uh, if I was feeling really down, or if I was having a bad day. Um, and also acknowledging that it's okay to cry um, in certain you know in certain situations. So now I just let myself. And I'll just, you know, if I'm going through it, I'll just let it all out um, and then put myself in an environment, you know, light some, light some candles, grab a book, do little things that just make you feel good and whatever that looks like. Because obviously hard to, um, I always found it was really hard to rationalise things. And so if I just did something really small, then that would um, be for the rest of the rest of the week, whatever that is um, for you. But yeah, for me, it's definitely trying to make some adaptations to my environment. Take it from us, we're having a chat with Keely O'Hagan today. She is a New Zealand high jumper and she's got a really interesting story to tell us and we've been talking about um, Keely struggling through her teenage years and, and now having found contentment. Uh, she's in her late 20s and is hoping to get to the Commonwealth Games later this year. So Keely, tell us, what you what do you do when you're not competing in training? Because you've, you're very well qualified in a couple of things, aren't you? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I guess so. Um, so I have got, um, I've managed to, don't know how, <laughs> um, get two degrees um, at different stages of my life. One was just when I left, uh, I had a gap year, which I needed because I needed to, you know, move forward and process everything um, and figure out what I, where I was going and what I wanted to do. But um, yeah, so I did a Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Anthropology. I worked for corrections for a little bit and then decided I wanted to train full-time. And so I quit that job um, and then moved to Christchurch for training and different coaching. And I've just finished a nutrition degree at the end of last year. So I have just, as of yesterday, started a new um, part-time role um, with a startup company, a nutrition company. So that's going to keep me busy going forward. I've been doing a little bit of nutrition work um, throughout this year. Um, 
And so that's kind of what, at the moment, I mean, being an athlete is uh, kind of a 24-7 gig. It's not something that you can just switch off. Obviously, you have moments where you're just, you know, you you take that aside Mm. and you're able to put it it behind you. But um, so for me, the main thing is around I'm – I finish training and I, um, you know, come home and I make sure that I have I have nutritious food and that will keep me going for either the next session. I nap almost every day. <laughs> that is a constant in my life, which I think also helps keep me a little bit sane. I can just, um, yeah, switch off. Uh, outside of work and training well, and um, sport, I'm a, I'm a big reader, Um Last few years, started to um, become a little bit more creative. So, um, doing some jewellery. Um, I am, have been attempting to draw. Uh, attempting is probably a key word. It's very much a learning process. Um, yeah, just and going for walks and doing um, little things like lying in the sun. Um, yeah, so my life at the moment isn't. It's very busy, but I have quite a lot of. Um, why well, I force myself to have a lot of downtime as well because it can be quite hectic and I find that if I do too much, I get a bit overwhelmed. What are, can you just tell us about the pressures of being a top athlete, both intrinsically, the pressure that you put on yourself and the pressure and other outside influences? Uh, the pressure that you put on yourself is probably one of the things that is maybe the hardest part of being an athlete. Um, You just expect more. You're constantly expecting more. Um, Obviously, we're striving in some... We'll never achieve that because obviously that's not realistic. But um, I just want, personally, just want progress. So if I'm seeing progress in small little ways, then I'm okay with that. I think around performance, it's really hard because you have a lot of, you put a lot of pressure on yourself and if you don't perform well, then there's a lot of negative, well, there can be, not always, there can be a lot of kind of negative self-talk that's associated with it and, and often you feel as though you as a person have failed, How, um, whereas you are just someone who hasn't achieved what they want in that particular context at that time. Um and so I think it's really hard to differentiate the two. And so the pressure that you put on yourself can sometimes make you feel um, unworthy um, as a person if you don't achieve the things that you want that you want to achieve. And we set the standard. And so sometimes, you know, we just um, it can yeah, that can be really hard. But I think for me now, I have tried to remove the pressure and obviously that to an extent you have to have um have that in order to progress forward but for me I've removed a lot of the that out with enjoyment and if I'm enjoying what I'm doing um then I won't feel the same pressure I don't know if that makes sense but um that's just something that I've that I've kind of worked worked on um personally you can definitely feel it and especially in you know in social media it's quite easy for people to look in from that well to look in from the outside and not see you know most people don't know what's someone's lives and so sometimes if someone makes a little comment of oh you know they're not doing 
very well um, or, any, uh, you know, they might not have the full context around why potentially someone didn't, um, I didn't perform well that day or haven't um, progressed and so to allow external influences bring you down as well. Um, also, it's quite, sports quite, quite political and so if, um, which obviously has to, everything um, has to be, um, and so there's a lot that you can't control in terms of um, being selected for teams and, and everything. And so if, yeah, it's, it is a hard process of trying to figure out um, how to not let anything else affect you um, and just kind of, uh, yeah, I try not, I try to block out anything, mm. any external noise now. Um, and just focus on me um, and, uh, and and what works for me. I guess that could be challenging. You're a young person, so you probably like to use social media, but we know about the dangers of that too, of course, is because of, of the online bullying and some of the stuff that you just referenced. So how, how can you shut all of that stuff out whilst also being an active participant? Yeah, it's really hard, and it's something that I haven't mastered. Um I see, you know, I still, yeah, I, I participate on social media. I, I haven't downloaded TikTok. I used to download TikTok because I don't want, I just know that I'll end up down a bit of a rabbit hole and um, and to probably more so with time than anything else. But then obviously, you know, there's been an impact on your mental health. So I, you know, in terms of length of time. So I'm just trying to restrict that as well. Um, but, you know, I still compare myself to other people sometimes. I still have my moments where I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, that person is amazing, you know. But we don't see everything that is going on there, and it's I, I can't imagine being younger than I am, and I'm an old, and I'm an experienced older athlete <laughs> now. Um, so in the sporting worlds, I'm not, I'm you know, I'm seen as old. I have had a few of the younger people be like, oh my gosh, and I obviously don't feel very old. I feel like I'm twenty. Um, yeah, and I, I, I definitely um, haven't mastered that. But I, in terms of the con- what I'm putting out on social media, it's something I still haven't. Um, I'm an active participant, obviously, in putting posting stuff up, especially on Instagram, um, and I still haven't figured out what, how I can do that without and, and try and minimise any harm that may be caused by someone else by seeing any of my content think of myself when I was younger and I would see, you know, older people that I looked up to putting stuff on social media and I just thought they were perfect and they didn't have any of the mental health struggles, didn't have any physical health struggles um, and they would have been feeling a lot of the same pressures that um, that I have had to work through over the last couple of years as well. And so, yeah. To answer that question, I'm not too sure. I haven't quite mastered it at all. Um, I'm just trying to be a little bit more realistic about life now on on my own social media, and hopefully that there's you know some that someone who, especially a younger person, can look at it and be like, "Well, you know, like I didn't realise that other people went through some other some things." But um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how yeah best to to go through that but I'm just I'm yeah just trying to put little snippets up of um reality at times do you do you 
speak to or mentor any young athletes? Did the younger athletes talk to you as someone who's a little bit older, as they say? And, and if so, what's the advice that you give them? And, and for any of our listeners today who might be younger, what advice do you have for them to navigate their way through life? Um, oh, that's a tricky, tricky one. Um, advice, my advice would just be to... Um, not, I know it's really hard to get yourself to other people and what they're going through and just work, you know, work on, on you and what makes you happy because what makes someone else happy isn't necessarily going to, going to make, what make you happy and listen to you rather than that and find your, find your people that support you and can be there for you because they'll help you. You're not going to have a perfect ride. Um, no one, you know, no one does, or very few people do. And, um, yeah, just try and really um, hone in on you and and your, like, awesome qualities that you have as a person. Because everyone has them, even if, you know, we've got we've all got some things that we might not like about us. There's so many positives. Um, and I've actually got now, I've got um, just up on my wall um, here to my left, you know, I've got... Um, affirmations that I've got there of I am worthy, um, be patient with yourself, fear cannot hold me back, I forgive myself because we all have things that we've said, done that we don't necessarily um, like um, but you have to be able to forgive yourself and move forward um, and I am powerful and brave and radiant so yeah, I guess finding those things that make you feel imp- um, that can guide you through the hard times. Um, That's great. That's so good, man. The the positive affirmation. So you're actually talking to yourself as you would anyone who's important in your life. Mm, Yeah. And it's been, and it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. But I, you know, sometimes I'll have moments and I'm just feeling so good that day. And so I'll, you know, if I'm done, like I might just, I've started doing um, like some dancing or like singing out loud, you know, I love music and um, yeah, just singing and then just acknowledging that happiness and that moment and how it makes me feel as a person and that, that just empowers me so much and it just makes me very happy with um, who I am in that moment and then hyping myself up, you know, like when I jump now, I stand there and I, I stand tall and I visualize in my head and I often you don't see it because it's kind of in the pre stuff before cameras go to you, but like I'll be smiling and I'll be like beaming, um, just loving being there and loving um, and knowing that I am like a strong person who can handle things that are coming forward. And I don't feel like that all the time. So yeah, Mm. just remember that that's not an all the time thing, but I've got these things there to help remind me. And if I say them, to myself more about I am brave, especially I am worthy. I am worthy really resonates with me as um, um, as a word that's, yeah, really strong and, and holds a lot of emotion for me. And I think that would be the case for a lot of people as well. Often we don't feel worthy. Um, so, yeah, to say, you know, constantly to myself that I am worthy. I am worthy of um, everything that is coming my way. Like I have, I, I have worked for this and I deserve this. Um and that's something that, yeah, it took me a long time to realise. But I love, yeah, they've been there now for quite some time and I moved them around the room so that they, 
I kind of see them all the time and I add, add to them. Um, but that's something that really, yeah, resonates with me a lot is some powerful words. I am worthy. Thank you so much for leaving that with us and thanks for your time and we wish you all the very best for the rest of your career and whatever else life throws up at you and fingers crossed you get into the Com Games team. Thank you so much and thanks for yeah helping share my story. Really nice of Keely to join us on Take It From Us today. But what of the other top New Zealand athletes? What duty of care is being taken to ensure they can access the help if and when they need it? Let's talk about that. Joining us now on the program is Dr. Campbell Thompson, Senior Performance Psychologist with High Performance Sport New Zealand. Really appreciate your time today, Campbell. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Tell us about your role as Senior Performance Psychologist with High Performance Sport New Zealand, working with athletes, working with coaches. What exactly is it that you do uh, each day? It's a, it's a really good question and it's varied. So I'll give an overview and then I'll give a kind of example where I've, I've protected identities, de-identified it to protect the innocent, if you will, uh, which, of course, you know is part of the job as a psychologist. So... Um, three levels, we can think of it as working with athletes individually to support with their well-being and help them flourish in what they've chosen to do. And when you're a high-performance athlete, a big part of flourishing in life means um, your performance is you're doing really well at it. So we support individuals one-to-one. Um, we also support the coaches um, and the people who are crafting the environments, the learning environment, the motivational client climate, so helping coaches... Um, with how they create environments for athletes to, to develop in. Um, the third part of it, so you've got team and individual there. The third part is system organisation. So, for example, if you're running a national sports organisation, um, you know, how I'd work with you on, on how you can use psychology to achieve the goals, you know, to achieve what you want for athletes in terms of outcomes, but also the experience you want your people to have. Um, the admin staff who sit in the office, um, the coaches and the athletes as well. So how, how will psychology help you with where you want to take your organisation? So it's those three mm. levels. Mm. How, it's, it's really interesting that you talk about, you know, a lot of the mental well-being for, for athletes is, is often attached with being successful and clearly one of your roles is to help them be successful. What about when they're not and, and, and it's about just coping? With, with perceived failure and with everyday life and with pressure? How do you help them in that regard? Well, it's, it's another really good question and, and can think about it two ways. It's one, imagine if you come to me, you've been to an event, it's not come out, off how you want, and then you're into coping, okay? You might, you might not have the tools mm. necessary in advance and then so you're getting a reaction because, um, uh, you know, it's like the man in the arena, isn't it? Um, the man who's at, the person who's out there in the arena with the, the sweat and the pressure and everything like that. You take on quite a lot. You take on quite a lot of risk out there and it doesn't come off. You know you're going to feel a certain way. So we might work, I might work with somebody after the event to say, okay, like how do we process that? How do we set new goals? But I'd say the majority of it now, Ken, is, is in advance of that. You know, if we're getting ready for a campaign, if we know that you've got your Olympics coming up in two years, let's approach this in a way where we know it's sport, right? We know that you can put yourself out there and on the day it doesn't come together. So two things. One, what can you do to maximise your chances of that happening on any given day? But the second bit is how are you going to motivate yourself? 
Um, you know, not to attach, you know, outcomes going to be driving you, but how can you be, what are you going to be about as an athlete? What's really important to you, win, loss or draw? Um, What is it that you want to express? How do you want to act? Um, So that, look, if you win, um, you don't get too attached to that, you know, and there's an old adage, and I know this to be true, that the gold medal is not going to change you as a person. I've even sat with athletes in their hotel room after winning a gold medal. You know, we said four years ago that gold medal wouldn't change you. And they're like, yeah. And I said, well, you still, you know, get annoyed by the same things. You still like the same things. It hasn't really changed you, hasn't it? They're like, no, not really. Um, so in preparation for that, not get too hung up on the winning and also not get too hung up on the losing either, where you know what your goals are, you know where you're going in life, you know what you're about as a person. And... Winning or losing a game of sports is not going to fundamentally change that. And then I think what we're doing with that is we're creating resilience um, going into these events so that, yeah, you're going to feel some stuff, but it's not going to take you off track with where you're going in your life. Does that answer the question? It it does. It's it's, it's that balance, isn't it, between the clearly a growth mindset that you're talking about, which is a healthy way to go, balancing that out with, with the clear knowledge of winning, losing, arriving at these fixed goals that an athlete might put on themselves. My, my next question was around the athletes that you work with, what's the, what's the number one mental health challenge or concern that they would have these days? When I think about athletes, athletes are really normal people doing extraordinary things. So... If I say athletes are going to have all the mental or any mental health challenge that anybody in the general population are going to have. So if we take 100 athletes, there's no reason why we wouldn't have the same incidents of, um, you know, a background with a depressive illness or with anxiety that you're just carrying with you. You might not even know that carrying with you as you come into high-performance sport. So... Um, those challenges to mental health, mental illness is a big challenge to mental health in place to help people when, not if, you know, given the numbers we're talking about, when, not if a mental illness or period of mental illness occurs. Hmm. The second bit is, um, again, probably what is, in your question here, what is unique to being a high-performance athlete that brings its own mental well-being challenges? And for me, that's pressure. So very high scrutiny um, from outside um, really fine margins of errors. You remember uh, Mahi Drysdale winning the gold a few years ago by like half a thumbs tip. You know the difference successful campaign on paper and not. Um, so there's, there's low margins. Then things happening really quickly as well. Um, and so that can all add up to a quite unrelenting sort of barrage of challenge coming your way. And we know the human brain, when you're constantly in challenge and you and you don't take respite, you don't take rest, you don't take recovery, um, your mind's not going to be a very healthy place to live in. Hmm. And then as well, if, if you know, think about what we said earlier as well, if you're judging yourself just based on the outcomes you're getting, um, then that's going to all add up to a pretty hard time in high-performance sport. So... It's really understanding your own mind and knowing that that unrelenting pressure is going to make it hard to stay well and stay in a flourishing growth mindset. And I think that's that's the number one challenge I think that athletes face is, is 
constant high challenge and how to how to work with that. Um, we, we just, with Campbell, we were just speaking with, with Keely O'Hagan just a, a few minutes ago, the New Zealand high jumper, about this, and, and she said that intrinsic pressure that comes from within yeah. is the hardest for an athlete to cope with as opposed to having to manage outside expectations. Is that, in your um, experience, par for the course for most athletes, that it's the pressure they put on themselves can, can be the most damaging? Yeah, and look, first of all, I'd really congratulate Keely on on um, one understanding that, and obviously getting herself to a, to a place where she can talk to other people about that. And I'm sure her saying those things will have a positive effect on other people. So, so nice one, Keely, to start off with. And, um, I think this is this is a huge area, and the way I talk about that is that we've got our inner critic, and then we've got our inner coach. And oftentimes that's something that you'll have, that, that I'll have as well. When we're in a tight spot and things aren't coming together or we're going in a pressure situation, we don't feel like we're doing our best, then the inner critic tends to harp up. And this is the way we approach things, that everybody's got an inner critic and it tends to come out in those tight spots unless you've practised otherwise. So um, in other fields we call that call it self-compassion, but I think it's something any any performer can relate to is learning to identify and step away from and um, leave your inner critic in the past and then adopt new ways of motivating yourself where you're more encouraging, where you're more understanding of, of the fact that you're human, you sometimes make errors, and where you're also probably in that state you're more open to actually, you know, what your strengths and what you can bring to a situation rather than your, your imperfections as a human. So if it were one thing, yeah, look, I, I'd, I'd tend to say... In a critic versus in a coach is massive for all athletes, all humans generally. Um, and I think on the inner critic, the other thing that's probably important to say is that why so relevant to high-performance athletes? Because we're often, by looking to improve and looking up the mountain, you know, we're, we're, we're nine-tenths of the way up a massive mountain, but we look up to the top, and who's up the top already? rather than looking at how far we've come. It's just how the human mind works. And so often the ways we've been motivating ourselves to get us nine-tenths of the way up the mountain, you know, are by using our inner critic to drive us to get better. But if that's really your only way of motivating yourself, it's one, like I say, your mind's going to become an uncomfortable place to live in. And secondly, it might not be fit for purpose to get you just that extra bit further as well and to stay there. So... Um, yeah, and a critic would be a big thing for us. Mm. It's that negativity bias that all of us have. It's a survival mechanism, isn't it? And it can be, it can be and, and, and we and I are grinning about this when we talk about it because we've all got it, but yeah. it can also be debilitating when the negative self-talk kicks in and... And it, I guess for, for, for a lot of, for most of us, for all of us, Campbell, but I guess at times too, particularly for high performance athletes, it's that ability to cope and to somehow flick, flick the switch and go the other way. Yeah. And so look, in, in talking about it, the one side, you know, we all have it and it will be feature and we can kind of look at our own critic with a wry smile perhaps sometimes. Um, but there are other times in life where that's really dominating our experience. And so we know that harsh inner criticism can be a factor um, in some of the um, common mental health disorders, so a depression, depressive episode, 
um, an anxiety, a generalised anxiety disorder. It can come with very, you know, the, the inner critic is dialed up and sort of dominates experience sometimes in those conditions. So I guess recognising that um, in terms of uh, what that means in a in a in a practical sense um, is that if we, you know, one is one is a global thing. If we're looking at our mental health, understanding what it means to be healthy. Um, having people around us who know what it means to be healthy and might, underst- might understand or know, have the right questions to ask when we go a little bit off track as well, then um, that's going to be really useful. So I think in, in terms of how we help people monitor their own, monitor mental health, is one is helping people be aware of um, signs and symptoms of that, the self-awareness to recognise when they get in, into an unhealthy place. But then secondly, we also know that in life, whether you're an athlete, you know, a psychologist, a radio host, whoever it is, there might be a time in life when your usual ways of coping aren't going to cut it and you need extra help. And maybe if you're in a bit of a hole, it becomes very hard to see your way out. Mm -hmm. And that's where we need connections to other people and sometimes professional support, there's professional support to reach out to, to get out of where we are and to heal um, that episode that we're in before we get back into into our life or so that we can get back into our life. Um, and that's, you know, that's probably, um, you know, people would say it's a rough estimate, three-quarters of people now in um, the lifetime. Um, and all the data we've got on high-performance athletes shows that they'll, they'll be no different across their lifestyle and, and lifespan. Um, but they're also in environments, um, as we've been discussing earlier, where some of these habits of mind or, or, or um, issues to do with being human as well. It's really fascinating stuff, Campbell, and we thank you so much for your time to talk with us today. You're listening to Take It From Us. My story, your story, our story. All right, let's talk to the developer of a new certification system to help neurodiverse people into work and to try and help them to stay there. So who are we talking about? People with the likes of ADHD, autism, and people who suffer from brain injuries. Uh, Rich Rowley is here to tell us more about Brain Badge. Let's get into it. Rich, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So we've got you on today to talk about the Brain Badge certification system. What exactly is it going to look like? Um, so uh, it's going to be a five-year commitment that organisations take out with us where they'll have a process of looking at where their organisations at in terms of supporting neurodiverse employees um, putting together, um, understanding what the gaps are and putting together a plan um, for how they're going to address those. And um, each 12 months, they'll kind of track where they get in and resubmit that. So over the course of five years, hopefully all of those gaps will be addressed. Right. So it's kind of like the rainbow tick. Is that Long yeah. lines, same sort of lines? Yeah, I mean, we were inspired by organisations like Rainbow Tech, Green Tech, you know, Gender Tech, mm. Accessibility Tech. Um, you know, it leverages a nice game mechanic and um, organisations understand them, what they are. I think that we had we had a bit of a unique challenge with neurodiversity because neurodiversity is 
it's kind of where the pride movement was, you know, 50 years ago. It's um, it's not really understood, and mm. very, very few organisations have even begun um, talking about it. So I think one of the... One of the challenges we had was that we couldn't make it a compliance-based certification because it it, it would take organisations a long, long time to mm. tick all of the boxes. So, like I say, it's it rather than it being um, put a tick in every box to show what you're doing, it's really about uh, understanding what your gaps are and um, assisting mm. you with things that you can do to um, fill those gaps. What type of neurodiversities are we talking about? Oh, <laughs> there's lots of them. I mean, there's, you know, um, ADHD, autism, um, fetal alcohol syndrome, brain injury, dyspraxia, dyscalculia. There's a there's a big, long list of them. Um, and, um, yeah, really, I, I, yeah, it's like, say, it's, it's just a diverse way of experiencing the world and thinking. Um, that can lead to, you know, some debilitating challenges in some circumstances. But um, really, you know, I'm legally classed as disabled, but I find it very hard to think of myself as disabled. And what I discovered um, through my previous work experience was that um, actually my brain thrives well in certain problem spaces, which tend to be very chaotic or complex. Uh, and that that's where I'm designed and built to function. But mm. 90% of the world exists in kind of more obvious problem spaces. And that's re- that's where I have problems because of my brain differences. So that's the way that I like to think about my particular neurodiversity Um you know, not in terms of deficits or disorders, just that actually I, I kind of like fill it, fill a niche and it's a much needed niche. Um, and, and it's, you know, it, it's actually good to be neurodiverse and have a different brain. So, yeah, and, and see it as a blessing, maybe. I've heard that being said before. Yeah, I mean, it's like all things, it's a blessing and a curse in equal measures, you know. Um, I really like the kind of social model of disability, you know, that you're not disabled by a condition. It's, you know, society's expectations and way of being that's actually the disabling factor. That's very much the case, I think, with neurodiverse people. Um, You know, everything's a challenge for us because the more neurotypical mainstream society has certain expectations of how people should behave, respond, interact and everything like that and that can be very tough and challenging and quite often debilitating. You, you know, I'm I'm a 50-year-old white privileged male who's got a law degree, I've got a master's in computer and I'm, you know, not a dumb person but I'm actually terrified to go into my bank and have an interaction with the bank it's it's just incredibly difficult and challenging and i always end up getting frustrated and quite often leaving with no outcome that i wanted so So as as part of the drive here then to change our expectations just to understand that different people think differently and experience the world differently and not try and force them into this one-size-fits-all box. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I, I mean, one of the things that I hope to, there's lots of stuff that I want to achieve with it, but one of the things is about empowering neurodiverse people to think differently about themselves. You know, it's still very much the case that we go through a school system that wasn't designed or built for us structurally, and it's, you know, despite the efforts of the people in that system to try and change things at a real fundamental level, it's just not built for us. So you're kind of excluded and made to feel different and odd and unusual and that there's something wrong with you and that you're broken, that you, you know, you need fixing. And, yeah, I, I think one of the main things that I'd really like to achieve is just empowering neurodiverse people to just to love themselves for who they are and appreciate that you're like everybody. You've got certain strengths and you've got challenges and... It's about making the world more aware of what our strengths are and supporting yeah. us around some of our challenges so that we can, you know, thrive and just add more value to organisations. And Rich, what will the raise the awareness here, perhaps embolden people to front up for, say, a job interview and say, look, I have ADHD? Because I don't imagine many people... I, I imagine, would I be right in saying that most people would would want to keep that to themselves... Uh, yeah, yeah. Even though, like, at my previous workplace, even though I had a really psychologically safe workplace and I was getting all of the support that I needed, it, it took me ages before I dared to say anything. Uh, and my ex-wife, my ex-wife works in HR and recruitment, and uh, I, I remember telling her somebody else at work, the one person at work in you kept telling me I should tell my boss, and I kept talking to it with my ex-wife, and... You know, she was adamant that I shouldn't say anything because of it's because of how neurodiversity is perceived. You know, if you take ADHD as an example, that's perceived as a deficit and a disorder. Well, well, that's not going to your boss with great news, is it? So, um, I think that's one. Once again, it's another reason why we're doing brain badge. It's not about forcing people to kind of like out themselves to the managers at work. It's about creating an environment at work where somebody like me might be experiencing some difficulties and then actually going, oh, my organisation's doing brain badge. I might feel a bit safer to go and have a conversation then with somebody about my particular experiences and challenges. That's, you know, it's, it's to try and make it easier to have those conversations. So eventually you had the conversation with your boss. How did it go? <laughs> it, it changed my life. She, because oh, I can't, I blurted it all out. And she said, "Oh, the first thing she said was, oh, I knew." And I remember thinking, "Oh crap!" I, I thought I was much better at hiding it. Um, but she said, "I didn't know what you got, but I knew you were different, and that's why I want you to work for me." And that kind of took it took everything that I thought about myself and about having my kind of diagnoses, and it really flipped it on its head. I'd never, ever, ever, up until that conversation, considered it to have any value or be anything special. Um, yeah, so it, it it turned the whole thing totally on its head. And it's, you know, that's still a a thing that I'm still trying to deal with, and, you know, I'm trying to undo... 40 plus years of thinking about myself in a certain way 
uh, and it, it's very hard to undo that. Um, but yeah, that it was a very, very, very profound moment in my mm-hmm. life. That conversation was, uh, and I was, um, I. <laughs> constantly think about how fortunate I was not only to work for that organisation but to have somebody leading it who had that kind of perspective But others, I guess part of the story here is that others are not as fortunate and if we looked at unemployment rates for people with neurodiversities they're they're much higher than for other people Yeah, it's, it's massive but it's It's not just the unemployment. So there's this massive challenge with neurodiversity. Nobody knows the numbers. So it's like with the numbers, you're only talking about the ones who have kind of like extreme enough to have got spotted. Um, You know, so if you look at ADHD, I think in the past few years, the number of diagnoses in the United States has gone up from 6% to something like, you know, just under 11% or something like that. And people talk about an explosion of ADHD as if it's catching and there's some reason for it. It's just nonsense. It's like, we've always been here. We're always going to be here. It's just nobody's really noticed us. And still, I I still personally believe that we're only kind of catching, you know, the edge cases. And um, so what that means is, you know, there are a lot, there are much higher numbers of us out of work than perhaps in other diverse groups. But on top of that, there's there's huge numbers of us already out there in the workplace. The One of the challenges is, the big challenges in this is, a lot of people themselves don't know. You, you know, I'm in a bit of, I live in a bit of a weird world cause, because I'm kind of out and I do talks with people about this sort of stuff. I get approached by people online all the time who are in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even older, who are just getting diagnosed. And they've been out in work. And it's it's like work is very often a very challenging experience for everybody. But it's like if you're neurodiverse, it's like you can add 40% level of difficulty on that. And, you know, <laughs> the well-being impacts of that are huge i mean if i had to describe my life before i went to work at the mind lab it was basically 90 percent of my energy every day was spent just trying to keep my head above water you know and then you are you you know you're so far near you're so close to sinking it doesn't take somebody only has to throw a couple more things at you and that's it you go under Uh, and you know that you know, that's when your mental health suffers, you go into depression and um yes, it's it's a massive massive issue, not just in terms of of unemployment for people who, you know, are neurodiverse, but also the ones that are already out there in the workplace and probably don't even know that they're neurodiverse. So, Rich, tell us when the certification system is, is ready to go and also the corporate support that you've already received. Um, so um, it should be launching in July. So we've got three really awesome founding partners. We've got Auckland Transport, the Warehouse Group and Kiwi Bank. And I suppose one of the <laughs> – when you're a diverse, so everything's different. So rather than us actually building the certification and then just getting to businesses, this is what it is. Um, 
I believe in human-centered design. So what we're doing is we're working with those founding partners and they're actually helping us co-create the certification. So um, we're building it together. So we've actually just finished our first eight-week design sprint with um, our first two founding partners, Auckland Transport and the Warehouse Group. And that's now given us everything that we need to get the the first version out. And then later in the year, we'll be going through that same process again um, with small people at AT, the Warehouse Group and Kiwi Bank, um, and improving the certification. So it's whatever the certification is when it launches. I believe it, uh, uh, you know, there's a, a Japanese um, concept called Lean, Kaizen, Change for Good, and it's this idea that whatever you've done is never finished and you can always improve it. So that's very much the approach that we're going to take with our certification. You know, it's not going to be this thing that we launched this year and it's going to be the same 10 years later. We'll launch it in July and by Christmas it will have changed and improved. So That's really encouraging stuff, Rich. And we wish you all the very best with the launch. And thanks for sharing your story and telling us all about it today on Take It From Us. Appreciate it. No, thank you for your time and, yeah, thank you for your interest as well. Great to hear there. Rich Rowley on Take It From Us. Uh, check out their website too, by the way. You can find out more, brainbadge.org. Uh, we've almost finished our program for this week, but before we go, of course, we need to send out some love. It is Sheldon shout-out of the week. Karen, who is it this week that we're talking about? Well, this week, uh, Ken, I think we've had a little bit of a sporting theme, and I'm going to stick with that this week. I was reading about a lady called Jamie Nepia. She's from Masterton, and she lost her leg in a shooting uh, during a family violence incident a few years ago. Now, she's come back. She's been doing, she's been training in a gym in Masterton, and in November this year, she's heading off to the World Kickboxing and Karate Association World Champs in Ireland. So I think that's a fantastic uh come from behind story and uh, you know, get up when you get knocked down you get back up again As, as Dave Latelli loves to say what an inspiring story and good for her and we wish you all the very best. Uh, remember, too, if you would like to nominate someone for our special Sheldon shout-out here on Take It From Us, get to the Facebook page, facebook.com, and, of course, go to the Take It From Us page. Uh, that is our program. Thanks to all of our special guests on the show today. We had Keely O'Hagan, Dr Campbell Thompson, and Rich Rowley from brainbadge.org. Special thanks to Karen Murphy for producing our show. It's always great to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. Look after yourselves. Let's look after each other, and we look forward to your company again next week. Take care. You've been listening to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns, produced by Karen Murphy, executive producer Andrew Dewhurst, made with the real stories and voices from our community. And for that, we thank you. For more information on anything you've heard on today's show or for direction on where to seek further advice or assistance, visit our Facebook page, Take It From Us.
Paranoa on air.